So Matt led out last week on our new sermon series, which is about Easter people. And we wanted to spend a few weeks this Easter season because remember, Easter isn't just a day. It's a whole season of the church calendar. And we wanted to spend a few weeks of that exploring this idea of what do we mean when we say that we're Easter people and what the heck is an Easter person and why do we feel like it's even important for us to lean into that identity? So for me, just a little bit of backstory, wanting to go here now is kind of a response to all the hardship that we've experienced in the last year, to all the broken paradigms and the faulty systems and inequities and social problems that we've that have been going on for decades, but that are now kind of more in the forefront of our minds collectively. And we have in the last year had to do some extra work in COVID particularly and in social justice awakening to level up our awareness and our activism and our capacity to sit with pain and to learn to speak more loudly, speak up more loudly and to be more intentional in so many ways. So I'm looking out at the world and I am seeing a lot of tired, depressed, grieving people. And in many cases, the grieving people are us. We're the grieving people. And these all these things that we're dealing with are hard and heavy, and we're giving acknowledgement to that. And that's really where our int- uh, attention has been throughout Lent. And some of us, many of us, have found great resonance in Lent this year, and that is great. And I'm looking inside myself, and I'm assess- assessing the ways that I, too, have become depressed and pessimistic in ways that my self-esteem has taken hits and my faith in humanity has taken hits and my hope has taken hits and how I'm weary. And really there's a new sadness inside of me. And maybe you can identify with that. And I'm also seeing a lot of pessimistic religion, both inside my stream, this stream that we kind of run in and in other streams. So here we are confronted with these Easter stories, these stories of resurrection and hope and new life. And I'm struck by how um, both the reality that I perceive around me and my inner reality do not align with what I see happening in the work of Christ in these stories. And I realize once again, that the invitation is for me to get in alignment with Christ is doing because in the end, I don't want to be a Lent person. I want to be an Easter person. Yes, I want to learn Lent's lessons and I want to integrate them, but I want to take them with me into Easter person living. I don't want my full attention to always be on grief and suffering, even though all that comes with the territory of being a human. I want in the end, the bulk of my uh, attention to be on life and joy and the peace that are available to me as part of God's family. I don't want to practice pessimistic religion. Instead, I want the freedom and hope that is offered to me every single moment that was exemplified in the life and death and resurrection of the Christ. And if resurrection isn't what we're interested in focusing on, then what the heck are we fooling around with Christianity for anyway? Amen. 
seriously, like if we're not willing to take Christ up on his invitation to live inside heaven on earth, then what business do we have with Jesus? Because Jesus showed a whole new way of being in the world. And that was one that doesn't capitulate to death and scarcity and pessimism and instead grabs hold of life. So this week's lectionary gospel reading is probably my very favorite passage in the whole entire Bible, aside from the Sermon on the Mount, which contains the Beatitudes, which we think around here that the Sermon on the, on the Mount and the Beatitudes are a pretty big deal, pretty particular pinnacle of scripture. But aside from that, this is my personal MVP passage, and I have been going back to it for years. I cannot get over it. Here it is. I'm reading our current favorite Bible here at Peace, which is the Inclusive Bible. Here's our text for today. We heard a little bit already. I'm going to read you the whole thing. In the evening of that same day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked in the room where the disciples were for fear of the temple authorities. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Having said this, the Savior showed them the marks of crucifixion. The disciples were filled with joy when they saw Jesus, who said to them again, Peace be with you. As Abba God sent me, so I'm sending you. After saying this, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained. It happened that one of the 12, Thomas, uh, nicknamed Didymus or the twin, or twin, was absent when Jesus came. And the other disciples kept telling him, we've seen Jesus. And Thomas's answer was, I'll never believe it without putting my finger in the nail marks and my hand into the spear wound. On the eighth day, the disciples were once more in the room, and this time Thomas was with them. Despite the locked doors, once again, Jesus came and stood before them saying, peace be with you. And then to Thomas, Jesus said, take your finger and examine my hands. Put your hand into my side. Don't persist in your unbelief, but believe. Thomas said in response, my Savior and my God. And Jesus then said, you've become a believer because you saw me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs as well. Signs not recorded here in the presence of the disciples, but these have been recorded to help you believe that Jesus, that Jesus <clears throat> is the Messiah, the only begotten, so that by believing you may have life in Jesus' name. We hear the voice of God in words of this sacred text. Thanks be to God. So I just have to mention, I can't not mention, in the second half of that passage, we learned something really refreshing, right? Which is that doubt is not the terrible faith ender that organized religion says that it is, because organized religion is mostly terrified of questions and of what we might find if we peel back the surface layer. But Jesus is actually pretty chill about doubt, and he seems, at least here in this example, willing to befriend it and kind of dance with it, which I find pretty comforting and important. So great. Thank you very much. I hope you all are also comforted by that. But in the first half of this passage, Jesus does three, it says, three very impressive and very important things that show us that he is living inside a whole 
other heaven on earth reality. The passage is so brief and you might miss it if you're not paying attention, but what Jesus does here is mind-blowing if you let it sink in. And I would submit to you today that these three things that Jesus says are three radical fulcrums of transformation. Okay? You know what a fulcrum is, right? It's a simple machine. Hang on just a second while I switch screens. So Jordan was kind, kindly built me a fulcrum today out of Legos. So a fulcrum is a simple machine. It's a pivot point around which a lever, this is the lever, in which case it's a back scratcher <laughs> today, around which a lever turns and it makes physical work such as lifting a rock more easy. Whoops, it's, it's a Lego fulcrum and lever, so more easy and effective. A fulcrum is also, whoops, <laughs> it's a faulty, faulty lever and fulcrum, but you get my drift. A fulcrum is also something that plays a central role in or is in the center of a situation or activity. I think these are three radical fulcrums of transformation. And the first one is that Jesus speaks peace. He's talking to his friends who are terrified and their world has just been rocked when their captain was killed by the oppressing regime, regime and then his body turns up missing and they are in a state. They are afraid for their lives. The person that they literally idolized has been killed by this regime in cahoots with religious leaders. And now some crazy women have started strange rumors that Jesus is alive, even though they saw him die. And that's obviously impossible. So the best option for them right now is just to lay low in fear. And Jesus appears through locked doors saying, peace be with you. Peace be with you. I'm sorry, what? Peace be with me? Like, can you imagine how they're feeling about this turn of events? What the? And I feel that. Like, when Jesus says to me, peace be with you, Fran, I'm like, did you not see the news today? Like, did you see my calendar? Are you paying attention? What do you mean, peace be with you? And Jesus is like, peace be with you. I said what I said. Peace be with you no matter what. Let peace be with you. Let it learn to allow peace to be within you no matter what. And you guys, imagine how, ex how different our experience of life might be if we were to do that. How transformative would that be if we could master this skill of accessing inner peace regardless of what's going on around us? How would that change the world and our lives and our relationships if we learn to let true peace, okay, not false peace, not peace, peace, where there is no peace, as the prophet says, but true inner peace that flows out of our connection to the divine. What would the world be like? What would we be like? I think that peace be with you is part of being an Easter person. And the longer I follow the spiritual path, the more I learn that the peace I experience is dependent upon me, my attention, my focus on the divine and not upon 
external events or other people. Okay, radical fulcrum of transformation number two. The second mind-blowingly Easter person person-ish thing that Jesus does is he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit like magic. Now, okay. Some people think that Jesus was imparting the spirit to them for the first time. That's a fine view. I take a different view of that. I tend to think that what Jesus is doing here is showing them that they already had the spirit all along. You can disagree with me if you want. This is how I look at it. They already know how to breathe. I think that Jesus is showing them that they have access to the spirit of God as near to them as air, as naturally as breath and as quickly as an inhale. (sighs) Receive the Holy Spirit. Did you forget you had the Holy Spirit? Just take a breath and let it remind you of what you have access to. You didn't have to do anything to put the air all around your body for you to draw it inside of yourself. It was just there waiting for you. Now, what if we really woke up to this? Like, what if we had our consciousness trained in this understanding that the spirit of God is right here near to us. It's within us. It's the breath in our lungs. It's the life in our bodies. And it comes with all the resources that the spirit has access to. What would we be doing with our lives is the, if this is what we knew beyond a doubt? What kind of people would we be? What kind of transformation would we be undergoing and causing in the world? I don't think that we'd still be so pessimistic and sad. I don't think we'd be quite so worried about our problems if we knew that the power and goodness and abundance and intention and life of the spirit of God was right here inside our lungs. If we woke up to that, I bet you we would be more trusting and hopeful. I bet we would be more grateful and I bet we would be, dare I say it, happier. And I think that Easter people are spirit breath people. What if whoosh receive the Holy Spirit was the fulcrum of transformation that we didn't know we already had? Just a thought. And then to top all of that off, which was mind-blowing enough if we really allow ourselves to let it sink in and contemplate it. Jesus tells us that we have this particular power. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, can you imagine what the disciples must have thought when they heard this? Like, who, me? You, it's on me to forgive or retain things. We thought that was your job or God's job or somebody else's job, not ours. What? And Jesus, once again, he's like, I said what I said. So much is said about forgiveness in spiritual circles that I think there's a tendency to tune it out. But in reality, y'all, forgiveness is the power of God in us in the most nitty gritty way possible. And not only that, it is absolutely the hardest lesson we learn here at Earth School. 
here's how I think about forgiveness anymore. If you take non-judgment and non-punishment and you mix them up, you get forgiveness. Can we see that Jesus came here to teach us not to punish? By accepting punishment, in this case, in the case of Jesus, scapegoating, and by not punishing in return, Jesus models what it looks like to practice non-punishment, which is to say forgiveness. He said the very words there on the cross at the end. He says, Abba, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do any of us truly know what we're doing? And yet we are still punishing ourselves and other people for not knowing what we're doing. Learning not to punish ourselves and other people is the hardest lesson. It's one of the hardest that I've come across here on my journey and earth school here. Now, that's not to say that we aren't going to experience consequences from our choices and our actions. Don't hear that. Here, that Jesus made intentional punishment obsolete. It's not a strategy that works in heaven on earth. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount when he's teaching on forgiveness right after he teaches the Lord's Prayer? He says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, that's a really tricky text for us to digest. It's really tricky. But if we let it, it gives us a strong sense of our personal responsibility in doing forgiveness, in letting things go. And later on, remember later on in that same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, always going back there, he, Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. Judge not lest you be judged. See, to, for, to not forgive yourself is to judge yourself in perpetuity. To not forgive something is to punish yourself in perpetuity, all the while thinking that you're punishing the other person. I'm going to tell you a little personal story, okay? This is really hard work. I know it well. You know what I'm having to forgive myself for? Giving so many years of my life in the service of toxic religion. Younger me thought that it was what she was supposed to do. She thought it was the right thing. And now me, okay, now me is so mad at her for wasting those years pouring herself out to a system that would never appreciate her and that was actively devaluating her, devaluing her and her sisters and her queer siblings. And now me sort of feels like she wasted her one wild and precious life. And it is so hard for me to stop punishing myself for this, even though I had no idea what I was doing at the time. Forgive me, mama. I had no idea what I was doing. And I have spent years draining my own resources on this. This is an area of work for me, an area of ongoing transformation. To not forgive is to drain our own resources because judgment and punishment require a lot of energy to maintain. But when we harness this fulcrum of forgiveness, it makes us even more powerful. When we forgive something or someone or ourselves, we let it go. And that's not that we just forget about it, but we decide no longer to devote our internal resources, our energy toward maintaining a connection of judgment or punishment with that experience or aspect. We are energetically poorer when we choose to maintain a grudge or a judgment of something or someone, 
or of ourselves. We are weaker when we are spending our energy on punishing and judging. But Easter people are forgiveness people and forgiveness people are powerful. In fact, this might even be our superpower. Easter people are given a mandate to utilize this radical fulcrum of transformation that we call forgiveness. Just let it sink in. Let yourself understand what this means. The great power that you hold, the great responsibility. This forgiveness is a fulcrum of transformation both in us, in our inner selves, and in the world. There's always an invitation inside whatever Jesus is saying. And I say this to you all the time, whatever Jesus is doing, we are invited in on. So if Jesus is proclaiming and being peace, we are invited to proclaim and be peace. If Jesus is breathing the Holy Spirit all over the place, we are invited to breathe the Holy Spirit all over the place. And then, then he's really explicit about our responsibility. If we forgive it, it is forgiven. And if we retain it, it's retained. And we get to spread forgiveness all over the world, just like Jesus is doing. Y'all, it's almost like, it's almost like Jesus gives us three cheat codes in this passage, cheat codes for how to win at life. I asked Blue yesterday, I was like, do you know what a cheat code is? And she's like, in video games? I'm like, yeah, like in video games for how to win the game. Cheat codes for how to live inside of heaven on earth. You want to transform the world so that it looks more like the world you see in your heaven on earth imagination. Here are three shortcuts. Peace be with you. Breathe the Holy Spirit. Forgive it all. Superpowers, cheat codes, shortcuts, whatever you want to call them. These fulcrums of transformation as I'm calling them today. It's just a metaphor. Peace, spirit, forgiveness. These are why this passage has captivated me for years and I always return to it and I always can see it with fresh eyes. It's amazing and never fails me. And the good news, all right, I'm almost done, but hear me on this. The good news and the bad news about this is they're each an inside job. No one can do your inner peacemaking for you. No one can breathe in spirit into your lungs on your behalf. No one can practice forgiveness for you. We can show you lots of tools. We have shown you lots of tools over the years. There are lots of tools to be found all over. But whether you decide to harness the power of these, this simple machine, this cheat code, this fulcrum is up to you. Whether you decide to be the lever is your personal decision. It's always a question. It's always an open question. How do you want to live? Do you want to live a disempowered and pessimistic and defeated existence, leaving the tools on the table unused? Or do we want to live the radical empowerment of being an Easter person? What? What a message from Jesus, what an example, and what a powerful set of tools that we are given for transforming our lives and transforming the world. Amen.